We're in a series on the book of John. We have, uh, we've started here in, we, we started at the beginning and we kind of moved through kind of smartly. We're going well. And then we hit John 13 and everything. I've just slowed down because there's so much packed into this. And John 13, 14, 15, sit right in there. That's just one, I don't want to say it's a sermon. It's Jesus teaching. It's Jesus teaching. And he's teaching because it's a, his, he knows his life is almost over. He knows the end is hours away. And so he's giving them what he thinks is the most important things for them to hear. I mean, you think about it. As people, we talk about this, you know, sometimes what were people's last words, the, the things that they say. And, and uh, this is what Jesus said. John has recorded it for us to teach us just like the disciples were being taught at that time. Now, what has happened is we, we were in John uh, 13 and 14. At the end of John 14, last week, Jesus said, come, let's go. And so they, they left the place. They started walking, right? And they're probably walking towards, we know the distances and stuff. They're walking towards the garden, what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. I almost had trouble pronouncing it. And, and so they're on their way, right? They're on their way. And more than likely, because we kind of know how things were back then, more than likely, they're going through uh, grapevines, an area of, for grapes, because uh, we know there was one there, a big one, and, and that would be on the way. So it's almost like Jesus, as he's walking, he sees and he starts teaching, Right? So let me read for you John 15, 1 through 5. You can follow along in your Bible. You can follow on your phone if you've got it on your phone. Or just listen. Now, imagine. I'm going to talk about imagination a lot. Imagine you're walking with Jesus. It's at night. And you're, suddenly you start seeing something that's incredibly familiar. Grapevines. Right? Cultivated grapes. And Jesus says this. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I want you to imagine, let me just pull up a picture here. This, this is a typical grapevine. You're walking by this and Jesus says, I'm the vine. My father is the gardener. And then he starts talking about the branches. And so I could easily see, because Jesus was a master teacher, he pulls a branch and then he shows this branch with fruit. He says the branch needs to bear fruit. That's what makes it alive, is that it's bearing fruit. We know it's alive because it's bearing fruit. If this branch wasn't bearing fruit, it's gone, it's dead, it's no good. This branch is bearing fruit. But you guys know, and if you know anything about uh, grapes and, 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 and wineries and that stuff, sort of thing, after, they, after they've harvested the grapes, they start snipping back. They use certain distances based on stuff they know because they're horticulturists. But they snip back the vine, the, the branch some, so that the next year it will produce more grapes. 
And so there's this process. Jesus is pointing, he's holding, whatever. And, and, and the, the disciples are going, yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it because we know this. We've seen this all the time. We know all about grapes and vines and that type of thing. And so what is he doing? He's walking and giving them a visual illustration using grapevines. Why? Because they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere around there. And this passage emphasizes something. It emphasizes the idea of fruitfulness. Fruit is refreshing, vibrant. Fruit brings life to those that eat it. That's why, and I've talked about, I know I've talked about this, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the introductory psalm for the whole book of Psalms, for all the Psalms. And in Psalm 1, what does he tell them? He talks about the person who follows after God. He talks about where life is found. And he talks about bearing fruit. What does he say? He says, the one who follows after God is like a tree planted by water. Now, remember, these are desert areas. So water is life. In the desert, water is life. And so if you're in the desert and you see trees in the distance, you know there's life there. There's water there. That's where we're headed to get water. And what happens to the tree that is planted by water? He says it, its, its leaves are green and it bears fruit in its season. It bears fruit at the right time, the way it's supposed. What is he saying? He's saying that tree is a sign that there's life. The tree itself is not life. The water is life that the tree is drawing up on. And he's telling us that that tree is fulfilling what it was made for when it bears fruit, when it blossoms and bears fruit. And he's saying, we're the tree. In, in Psalm 1, he's saying, we're the tree. We, are, we, don't have, we don't have life. We know where the life is in that sense. It's in Jesus. And then we bear fruit. How? We serve, we love, we reach out to others, we impact other people's lives. We bear fruit that way. So that's Psalm 1. So this whole idea of bearing fruit, they're very familiar with this, right? Paul picks this up when he starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and, and that word there is singular, so it's one fruit, and so the, I, the things that come after it, when he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all the different facets of that fruit, all the different ideas that are packed into that fruit. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. So this is something that is throughout the Bible. And I mean, we talk about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We all want that. We want that in our lives. But we know we're incapable of doing it on our own. It's hard. It's frustrating. Our, our baser instincts always overcome our best efforts. And this passage is going to show us how deeply committed Jesus is to us bearing fruit. Jesus, and I've talked about this before because Paul sometimes uses these terms. He uses terms that are used in horse racing. He uses terms that are used in gambling and, and, and in boxing and, and in the, the, the Olympic games that were going on at that time. And one of, one of the terms he uses is very similar to what we would think of in poker. Jesus is all in for us. He's pushed all his chips to the middle of the table. For these disciples, Jesus is going all in. He knows he's going to die for them. 
So he's gone all in. And so he's teaching and he's gonna teach us. I want you to see first God's work in this process. What he does in order to make sure this growth happens in our lives. You know, sometimes with my grandsons, they will talk about some things and they don't understand and it gets hard for them to understand. So I try to break it down. I try to, I try to think of ways of talking to them in, in words they'll understand, concepts they'll understand. And that's what's happening here with Jesus. He's talking about a union. He's talking about a mystical union, the Bible says, that is real and alive and it works in our lives. And it's hard to totally grasp this concept. In chapter 14, previously, he's already broached this and started teaching them on this. He's, he's told them, I am in you, you are in me. I am in the Father. The Father will be in, you know, he's, he's using these phrases that are so hard and difficult to understand. So how does it work? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus gives us an image, a familiar organic image, the vine and the branches that shows an interconnectedness, right? A relationship of total com commitment and reliance on each other. The branches are totally committed to the trunk. Why? Because that's where the sap comes from. That's where life comes from. The branches know on their own, you snip off a branch that has green leaves and starting to grow grapes, you snip that off and you just stick it somewhere, it dies quickly. The grapes wither, they don't come to, to, to fruition like they should. Why? Because it's lost the connection. And so he's showing us this connection. The Bible talks about in other places as this union. And it's, he's using this, you know, this, this, this kind of a metaphor for us. Now, we have to understand sometimes we can take a metaphor that's used in the Bible and we can just go crazy with it. And we need to kind of stick to what Jesus is trying to teach us. But here, this grapevine, he's opening the door to some of the most beautiful realities of the Christian faith. And what is the claim here? The God of the universe wants to dwell in each of our lives. He wants to make our very persons his abode. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is teaching here. So if the miracle of the Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the miracle of the Christian life is that he dwells in us. He tells them, he says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He's in us and we're in him. And this is why they call it a mystical union because it's hard for us to figure, it's hard for us to think that through. It's hard for us to totally understand and we will not totally understand it maybe someday in heaven, right? But in Colossians 1, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, no, I didn't put it in. I'm sorry, let me read it to you. I forgot to put it in here. Um, it says this, to them God has chosen to make known the, among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, this is being revealed. This is the central claim of the Christian life. It's astounding. It, it really is too much at times to comprehend. To be able to think that Jesus knows me because he's in me. He knows everything. And let's just not leave me hanging out here. He knows you too. Everything. Your darkest thoughts. 
your darkest desires. And he still loves you. And he still wants to be with you. This is the key to change in our lives. This is what makes fruitfulness possible. God in us, working in us, like the sap coming out of the trunk into the branches, empowering us through the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the Holy Spirit some uh, previously and how his, his work in doing this, his job, in a sense, almost in doing this, his part. It's incredibly encouraging. Lasting change in your life is possible. He enables us to live beyond our abilities. And I think even taking it a step further, this passage is teaching us this since the God of the universe is in you, change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. And it's an incredible claim. It's an incredible claim. Such an incredible claim that there has to be some sort of, you know, incredible claims demand something. They demand that, that there's some proof to them. There's, they demand that something happens to show that they're true. Uh, uh, like, for instance, you know, I... Um, I really like hockey. I played uh, hockey as a kid and, and, and some as an adult, you know, with clubs and stuff like that. I really enjoy hockey. Now, if I, if I was around here somewhere, say I was in Williamsburg, you know, in the wintertime, and, and I meet some guy and we get talking, you know, and inevitably people say, you know, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a professional hockey player. And I'd be like, wow, wow, I, that's awesome. I got a little bit of an idea of what that entails. But um, you're pretty skinny, you know? And he would say, Wayne Gretzky was skinny. And I'd be like, you're, you're not Wayne Gretzky, or I would have heard of you. I know that, right? And he says, yeah, but I'm quick and I'm smooth. You can't hit what you can't catch. And I'm like, okay, okay, I got that. So we're in Williamsburg. It's the wintertime. You know what they put up in Williamsburg at the wintertime? They put up a little rink, right? You remember that rink? There's a little rink that's there in Colonial, Colonial Williamsburg. I always love to stop and, and just kind of watch at the rink because, you know, there's always these little kids going too fast, wiping out these old people that can't go very fast at all. And it's just kind of funny. It's like watching bowling for people, you know, because <laughs> you just, I, I, we would this past winter, I, I told one of my kids, watch that kid right there. Watch that kid. He's going faster. He's going faster. He's going faster. He's out of control. Boom, strike. You know, <sighs> you see the pins drop. And, and that rink, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So I say, hey, dude, let's go, let's, a little, little skating. Let's skate a little bit. Okay. So we get on the rink, and I notice that he goes and holds the rail. And so now I'm going, okay, your incredible claim is not being backed up by what I see. It's not being backed up by what I see. What I see does not demonstrate what you claim, because you're making an outrageous claim. And as Christians, we are making an outrageous claim. And how's it working out? Because Jesus is saying it will. He's saying change will occur. He's saying every season the sap runs and the, and the branches are strengthened and leaves come out and buds blossom into grapes. Every season, it's a process that happens there should be changes in our lives. The heart of this metaphor is how it works out and the fact that God is doing it. God uses his word to change people. God uses people of God to change other people. God uses circumstances in, in our lives to change us. He uses prayer to change us. 
Because Jesus said, I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. And then he said, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So he's saying there's this relationship. There's the vine and the gardener, which is a relationship they're very familiar with. That's not news to them. The fact that he cuts off the dead branches, the branches that refuse to bear fruit, that's something they say is it's obvious because dead wood in a vine can lead to decay and lead to disease. There's no sap in dead wood. It has no relationship with the vine. The fruitful branches, literally where he says prunes, literally that word means cleans or cleanses or purifies. And it was often used of pruning, but it also has an overarching meaning of cleansing. So his point is that he's going to cleanse the branches. He's going to cleanse those branches so they will be more fruitfulness. That's the whole point. That's what God has made us for. That's what God wants us to be the best at. And he says in verse 3 there, it's an interesting phrase, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, he's already said this once before. If you remember, back in John 13, he said that to Peter. Here it is, John 13, 10, 11. Jesus answered and said, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. The whole body is, their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. What's happening there? Jesus is identifying, if we think of the, the metaphor that we're using right now in John 15, he's identifying the dead branch. It's Judas, he says. And see, this is key for us to understand. Because he's using Judas as an example of dead wood, of useless wood. Because Judas is consciously planning the betrayal of Jesus. And see, sometimes with these metaphors, like with the branches and the vine, people can take it too far and think, oh no, you know, I've noticed lately some bad things have been happening to me. Maybe God is just cutting me off because I'm not a Christian. Maybe I've lost my salvation. And that's not the point of this. Jesus is giving us a description of what the dead wood is. It's Judas. It's someone who's against his plans. Someone who is actively fighting what he is doing. Because notice he said to Peter, you are clean. Because of the word, you are clean. Now, what's Peter about to do? He's about to deny Jesus, right? And Jesus is saying, you're not dead. You're not dead. He's telling us something that is so good for us to hear. I know you're going to blow it. I know you're going to sin. I know you're going to make mistakes. That doesn't make you dead wood. That's incredibly comforting because I blow it a lot, right? So he's reassuring us, right? You, you, you are not being cut off that, you are clean. And that's what he's telling Peter, even though he knows Peter's gonna deny him. He says, you're clean. And this is pointing back to, we talked about this in John 13, pointing back to the initial point of salvation. You know, when I came to Christ, it was a struggle. I, uh, I didn't wanna lose control. I didn't wanna lose my independence. I didn't want to change my ways, especially the things that I thought were exciting and, and, and were fun. And uh, there was a foundational pruning in my life that needed to happen. I had to come to the end of myself. And the Bible calls it taking up our cross and following him. And so I ran. I, I, I ran from God for a long while. And, and finally, he caught me. And when you're running from God and he catches you, it's a defeat, but it's a beautiful defeat. And I realized 
suddenly, this is what I was made for. I, I, I fall short of this. I can't save me. I need a rescuer. I need a savior. I need reconciliation with God. And so I gave myself to him. And then Jesus came to live in me. And it changed. The first people who noticed it were my parents. They called one of my brothers and they said, something has happened to Bob. We're not exactly sure what's going on, but it's good. It's good. And so one of my brothers came home and we had a, we had a little talk and he said, you know, mom and dad are telling us, you know, he said, have, have you accepted Christ? And I said, yeah, I have. And he goes, I knew it. I knew it. He was the one that talked to me about it like five years ago when I told him, you know, forget you. And, uh, and so it, we change. We change with that initial cleansing. And we're clean because of the word. And that was like, almost like an initial prune. And then, beca- then it becomes this process in our lives of pruning. It's a, it's a, it's a process. It's, it happens all the time with grapevines. It happens all the time with us. Pruning or cleansing, the cleansing that Christ brings us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes in our lives, people can hurt us. Uh, sometimes in our lives, things go really wrong. And, and let me just, a little side note. Most often, most often, like almost all the time, when someone bothers you, it's because you see yourself in them. You see something about you in them, and you're like, ugh, I don't like that. Because you don't like it in you. I mean, with me, talking to somebody a while ago, no one here. And that just was like, oh, this guy won't shut up. Right? And that bothers me because I can struggle with it. I mean, I also know that on any given Sunday, there are people here or online that are going, oh, that guy won't shut up. Right? I understand that. And I understand that could be my problem sometimes. I could be a know-it-all, and I can talk too much and try to make people think I know everything. And so that bothers me when I meet a know-it-all. I'm like, oh, this guy's a dope. He's just gonna, he thinks he knows soccer. He doesn't know. I, I know soccer, right? I, he, no. And it bugs me. Who does he think he is? When something bothers you, about a person, many times, maybe all the time, it's you see something that you recognize in yourself and you don't like it because you don't like it about you. And so sometimes people hurt us. Sometimes things go wrong in our lives. And what happens? We need to stop sometimes and consider what's going on here. Is there some pruning going on possibly, some cleansing going on? Because when things are hard, it makes us stop and think, what's going on? What am I trusting in right now? What am I looking to for hope? A lot of people now are looking at the stock market and going, I'm, I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? Because it shows you what you trust. What am I looking to for hope, for meaning, for satisfaction, right? What am I looking? Because I know from one of my favorite theologians, yeah, that was going to be a very dramatic I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Take that off. I know, I know, I know what happens. Every once in a while, I'll do something like this, 
and talk. And then sometime I'll talk to a friend who's a pastor. He goes, did you not too long ago put a picture up? I'm like, what? People talking out of school, talking out of church here, right? People are like, our pastor quotes Mick Jagger. But you know what? He's right, right there. He's right. There's no satisfaction, not in this world. So someone hurts us, someone, someone causes pain, things happen in our life, we start thinking, what am, what am I living for? What am I trusting in? What am I looking to for hope, for joy, for satisfaction? I need to look to God because he's the one that has meaning and hope and satisfaction. And oftentimes these difficult times, and if we're honest, we all admit to this, sometimes the most difficult times drive us deeper into Christ. We grow from those times. I don't pray for them. I don't pray for, for pain in my life, but I know I grow from it. I know it'd be simple, awesome to think about it. I had somebody mention that to me one time. Why can't God just get rid of suffering? You know? And we talked about it for a while, but I read something a while back that I think is really good. There's a, there's a man, he's, he's dead now. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge. He was, a, he was a brilliant, brilliant writer and thinker. And he came to Christ very late in his life. And someone asked him uh, as he was dealing with health issues late in his life, you know, don't you just wish God could just take it all away? And this is what he wrote. Supposing you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness the world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. It's an interesting thought, right? He's saying we need it. We need it. It keeps us in check. It makes us appreciate things. And so God is at work. He's at work within us. He's at work outside of us to change us, to make our lives bear more fruit. This is, this is our great hope for change in this world. And this cleansing process, this pruning process, it comes in many ways. We tend to think, you know, we hear pruning. We tend to think it's just God with a big pair of, it's like scissors or, you know, whatever. I know this hurts, but you're going to be better. You'll thank me later. Like, you know, like God somehow gives pleasure in that. But we have to think of it, what it really means. It means a cleansing. And so sometimes there is, there is a snipping of a branch. But sometimes it's just through his word. He works on us. It's through others, through prayer, and through circumstance. So that's God's work. Now, what are we called to do? What does he look to us and say? He says this, remain in me. That's a key right there. Remain in me as I also remain in you. He says, I'm not leaving you. So stay with me on this. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this word remain, it means to abide. It means to dwell. It means to make your home. He says, I'm gonna make my home in you. Make your home in me. And how can we think about this? And I think a big part of this is learning how to use our imagination, which, which we know how to use, but you may be thinking, really, Bob, imagination. Imagination is make-believe. It's pretending things are there when they're not. But that's not really what imagination is. That's a part. But we often imagine something that is not visible, but is real. 
We do this all the time. You know, you think about in this room right now, radio waves are passing through this room. Cell phone waves are cell, I don't even know if they're cell phone waves, whatever the waves are that cell phones work off of. They're passing through this room, right? We can't see them, but we know they're real. This is, this is reality. There's certain things we can't see, but we know they're true and we know they're real. And so we use our imagination. You ever see somebody write, that's a radio wave. Is that really a radio wave? I mean, I don't know, maybe it is. But we make it visible and we use our imagination to see it, to acknowledge the truth of it. Um, great example of this is the first Willy Wonka movie. With Wonka vision, that's a little boy passing from one space to another, right? They imagine it. I'm taking it away quick because I know you guys will not hear anything I say after that. We imagine it to say that that's what really happens, but we're just imagining. I had a great, um, I'm just a history nut, you know, and my, my dad was in the military, so I'm interested in all things military. And uh, one time years ago, uh, a guy who I'd been working with and discipling some, he said, I uh, work and in charge of some Apache helicopters over at Fort Eustis. Would you like to sit in one? And I was like, oh man, yes. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, right? And he said, I said, wait, but we're, we're not flying, right? I'm not, a, not sure if I'm up. He goes, no, no, you won't be flying. He says, I just want you to sit in the gunner's compartment and we'll show you how it works. Oh, this is the greatest thing. I felt like I was a little kid again. And he said, now we're going to do it at night because during the day, everything's busy. I can't do it then. I said, is this legal? Are we sneaking into a military base so that I can sit in an attack helicopter? Uh, he goes, yep, cleared it with my sergeant, cleared it with a, above, everything's fine. We do this, we can do this. We do this at different times with VIPs. And then I was like, I'm a VIP? And he said, well, not really, but I get to choose someone that I can do this with. And I said, okay. So me and it was a friend, another friend and we drove out there and he put us, he opens up this Apache helicopter, puts us up, starts it. Like I got this helmet on and I'm hearing. And I'm like, hey, 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 hey. And he's outside, he connects and can talk to us. I say, hey, 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 hey. I hear a jet engine. I was just, just to run the avionics and the air conditioning because it's hot. I was like, oh, Apache helicopters have great air conditioning. I just want you to know that. There's your tax dollars at work, right? So I'm taking too long on this, but anyways, there's a point here somewhere. So he fires up the weapon system because I'm in the gunner's seat, the front seat. And he fires up the weapon system. And, and, and so this screen comes alive and he goes, now, okay, do you see that deer? And I look at the screen, I say, yes, yes, yes. He goes, okay, put the reticle on it and then push that button. And it locks onto the deer. And I was like, he goes, yeah, now your gun will follow that deer wherever it goes. He goes, in fact, watch this. He unplugs, runs out into the darkness, waving his arms and screaming. And I'm watching and the deer's head comes up and, his and he starts bounding, right? And the gun's going, following him. And you know, sometimes you say stupid things when you get excited. I'm like, you can run, but you can't hide. And then, and then all of a sudden I realize, wait, this is to kill people. <sighs> okay. So the deer jumps into the woods, right? 
jumps into the wood, disappears. The lock breaks. He comes running back, plugs back in. It went in the woods, didn't it? I said, yeah, it went in the woods. He goes, okay, flip the switch. You see that switch right there? Flip that switch. I flip the switch. Thermal imaging. There's the deer. It relocked on him. And I was like, I can't see that deer physically. I can't see that deer. I can't see a thermal image of a deer anytime. But we have things that can. And people imagined that, and they made it real. Because imagination, imagination doesn't make it real, but imagination gives us clues on how we can make things real, or it gives us clues to things that are real. And this is what I'm talking about when we talk about using our imagination, when we start talking about things that are hard to describe or understand. Because the Bible tells us there's all sorts of realities that are at work in this world that we can't see with our physical eyes, our senses. And the greatest of all things is that it says, tells us that God dwells in our being. We can't see it, but it's true. And we can experience it. We can experience it. Our imagination can help us understand it. That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we serve others. Because we understand something's at work here that's greater than us, that can change people's lives. I don't know how God changes people's lives. I just know it happened to me. I know what happened to me. And so when we pray and read our Bible and serve others and things like that, it's not because you're supposed to do this as a Christian. It's not a checklist. They're a part of us experiencing our union with Christ. They're a part of growing deeper in our union with Christ. They're a part of knowing him better. When we do these things, we know God better. We experience him better. He becomes more real to us. We see him work more. Jesus just said in the last chapter, these people who are doing these types of things, he says, I will show myself to them. They'll see me at work. They'll see it happen. There's a life-giving source. It is Jesus. That is the meaning of this metaphor. He is intertwined with us. Jesus is telling us, use your imagination to understand the relationship we have by thinking about grapevine and his branches there's a, a, a great writer, church guy from way back, Ignatius of Loyola, he's called, and he, he recommended this spiritual exercise for believers. He said, learn to read the Bible and imagine that you are there, on the scene, in the story. What would you think? Think about it. What would you smell? What would you hear? What would you see? How would you feel? How would you react? And he, tells, he would tell his disciples, slow down and enter into the story. Don't just read the story to find out what's going on. Enter into it. Now, we've been doing that here a long time. Why? Because I love history. It's good to enter into these things to understand what's going on. It's good to look at culture and historical setting and the religious setting. All these things help us to imagine and understand the situation better. We, we, we talked about this a while back earlier in John, when Jesus went to see the woman at the well, right? We talked about a couple of things that are important to understand the context. First of all, we talked about the fact that Jews hated Samaritans. We had to understand, and we tried to understand the depth and the reason for the animosity that Jews had towards Samaritans. It was, it was huge, right? And then we talked about the fact that Jesus decided to travel through Samaria. No rabbi would set foot on Samaritan soil. 
some Jews went through, but they were considered Jews who didn't really follow God. Because if they really followed God, they wouldn't go into Samaria and they wouldn't talk to Samaritans. And Jesus tells his disciples, this is the way we're going. Now, imagine what they thought, right? Imagine Peter, especially Peter, pulling Jesus out. Jesus, listen, I'm not sure if you got your geography right here, pal, but this goes straight into Samaritan territory, and that's not us. And Jesus is like, no, we're going. And so they go. And then what happens? He's at a well, and a woman walks up. Now, remember, we talked about in those days how women were treated and it was terrible. So no self-respecting Jew, most men, they would not talk to a woman. They wouldn't engage. They especially wouldn't talk in a way that treated them like an equal. Right? And, and we know that this is incredibly surprising because the first thing she says, he says, can you get me a drink? The first thing she says is, this is the reversed Mosley version, is this. Why in the world are you talking to me? She says to him, what are you doing? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are the words coming out of your mouth? Why? She can't believe it. She can't believe it. See, and we can exercise our imagination, and we can begin to step into that picture now. We can begin to understand what's going on. We can imagine the disciples walking up. Jesus is talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and they're like, what? What is going on here? I can imagine Peter saying, I think maybe he's lost his mind. Fellas, we need to do an intervention, right? Because it's just so stunning. It even stunned her. And as we begin to put ourselves into, and this is what Ignatius of Loyola says, put yourself into the story. Become a bystander. See, hear, look, smell. What's going on here? Jesus walks up to a man who's got leprosy. You're not supposed to get anywhere close to them because it's a contagious disease. Don't get near anyone. Secondly, you don't get close to them because they smell horrible. Leprosy is parts of your body rotting. So the smell, the stench is unbelievable. And what does Jesus do? He walks up to him, and he does something very interesting. He touches him. He touches him. He puts his hand on him. Again, Peter, oh, great, Jesus. You just touched an unclean person. You have to go into isolation for 10 days, and then you have to prove that you aren't infected with the disease. You have set our time schedule back so much. Way to go, Jesus. Right? And what did Jesus do? He touched him. And then he said, be healed. And he was healed. And everybody didn't know what to do because that didn't happen very often. And everybody, and Peter's like, way to go. What? Oh, never mind the first part, right? That's putting ourselves into it, begin to understand it more. And so what happens now? We exercise our imagination and we begin to realize something. Christ is in me. Jesus Christ is in me. All the time. He is my life and he is my power. How we see our troubles makes all the difference in the world. And God promises that in this world we will have trouble. We're not any different. Christians don't get a pass. 
But God says something special for Christians. He says, I will use the evil in your life for good. I promise you that. I will use it for good. And he does. And he does. Now, God telling us he uses evil for good doesn't lessen the pain. It doesn't make it go away. And I will be the first to admit to you, there's some things in my life that have been especially terrible, and I haven't seen the good come out of them. And maybe it's just because the good has been in a place where I haven't been able to see it. Maybe it's coming later. But I've seen lots of times where God used evil for good, where he followed through on his promise. And I know I can't see everything, so I'm going to trust him on that. But the pain is still there. So what does that mean? That means we don't fall into this despair. This promises us something. God's going to use it for good. I'm with you. I'm in you every step of the way. So don't fall into despair. Don't give up. Don't fall into the trap that says life is meaningless. God wants to live in you, and he wants you to live in him. He delights in you. What does that mean? He finds his joy in you. I always think of uh, the movie Hook with Robin Williams, where he's looking for his happy thought, and suddenly he realizes it's Jack, his son. Can I tell you something? Oh, man, I get, see, I get sappy over Hook. You are God's happy thought. He delights in you. He delights in you. This is an astonishing thing. And what this does is it opens up what we were made for, what we were made to be on this earth as children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this illustration, which shows us so aptly the connection that is between us and you. And Lord, we pray that we would draw from the trunk. We would draw the sap, the strength, that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to live beyond our abilities. And Lord, we thank you that you have done this because you love us so much and you have great, great plans for us. Help us to walk faithfully and follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen.